Well, today we come to uh, one of my f- favorite texts of Scripture, at, at least one that's, that's really uh, impacted my life and, and ministry, I would say. In Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, Paul lays out his understanding of God's plan to grow the body of Christ towards unity and maturity. See, if you're a Christian, you are part of the body of Christ. You've been joined together with Christ. You are in him and in his body. You were baptized into the body of Christ. Salvation has immersed you into Christ. And now as a Christian, you and I are to walk worthy of our calling. And this worthy walk involves, first of all, maintaining the unity of the Spirit, as we saw in chapter 4, starting in verse 1 of Ephesians. The first thing Paul mentions when he urges the Ephesian believers to walk worthy of their calling is that such a walk means walking in unity. Salvation united us in Christ, and walking worthy of that salvation requires walking in unity. After all, as Paul said in verses 4 to 6, there is only one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But in verse 7, Paul recognizes that we are all different. Every member of the body, every member of the one body has a different measure of grace. And in the one body, no two members are the same. And so the question then comes, well, how does this diversity in the body relate to our unity? This is the question that Paul turns to in our text, really starting at verse 7 and then, but especially in our text, he gets to it. Does our diversity destroy our unity? Can we truly be united if we are different, if, if each of us have different gifts and different functions in the body? Is our common salvation and our common interest in the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is that really enough to unite us together? And these are questions that Paul answers in our text today. He began, like I said, answering these things in verse 7, as we saw last week. Verses 7 to 10, we saw that our differences come from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave grace to each one of us. This conquering King, our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, he gave grace gifts to each and every believer. And he gave gifts to believers, and then he gave those gifted believers to his church. And the various gifts that were given by the one Christ, we we called him last week, we called him the Lord of Unity. These various gifts came all from him. We're different because Jesus made us different in the ways that he did. And now in verses 11 to 16, we're going to see that each one of us, though different, each of us contribute to the body to build one another up towards unity. And so what we see then is that our diversity actually contributes to our unity. It doesn't destroy our unity. It actually contributes to it. Christ made us different with different gifts to enable us to grow into his image. One of us wasn't sufficient. We needed, he needed a, a whole body, a whole host of people with different gifts and abilities to cause us to grow together. 
Now today we're going to really just focus on verses uh, 11 to 13, but I've kind of outlined the passage really all the way to verse 16. So let's, let's read our text this morning. Let's start again back up in verse 7, Ephesians 4, starting in verse 7. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so what we're going to see over verses 11 to 16 is that the body grows towards unity through a diversity of gifted people. The body grows towards unity through a diversity of gifted people. And like I said, this was a a helpful text for me, and I think it'll be helpful for us. This text really lays out my role at our church really in a, in a very clear way. And it's also going to help you see from scripture then what, what I'm supposed to do. I think it's helpful to know what is the pastor supposed to do? What are his goals? And so it lays out my role. It also lays out your role. You see, if you're a Christian, you have a ministry in the church and you have a ministry to the church. And so this text shows us what we should be working at together. It shows us our goal and what we should be striving towards together. In verses 11 and 12, we're going to see the people through whom the body grows. And then in verses 13 to 16, we're going to see the process by which the body grows. But like I said, we're only going to cover up to verse 13 this morning. And so let's get into it here then. The the, the people through whom... The body grows, verses 11 and 12. The people through whom the body grows. If you look at verse 11, it says, and he gave, and then it lists various people that he gave. He, as I believe we've already seen, is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who gave. He is the one who gave grace gifts to each one in verse 7. He is the one who ascended on high and gave gifts to men in verse 8. He descended into the lower region of the earth. He descended into the grave in verse 9. And then he ascended in verse 10, far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And then this, this conquering victorious Lord who descended and then ascended above all, he himself, Jesus Christ, gave these people. 
And so the victorious, exalted, ascended Lord Jesus Christ gave these people to his church in verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now the first thing that I want to note here is that all of these people described in verse 11, they have a ministry of teaching the word of God. They were teachers and and, and probably also leaders in the church, every one of these, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers. In fact, the two, the first two there, the apostles and prophets, they actually wrote the word of God, the New Testament. Paul had already mentioned these two together, the apostles and the prophets, earlier in the letter. And so if you would just kind of turn back to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. Ephesians 2... 20, Paul said that the household of God from verse 19, which is speaking about the church, the church was, in verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. And so the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And this is speaking about the New Testament prophets. New Testament prophets would be people like Mark and Luke and James and Jude and maybe the author of Hebrews. And you know the apostles, Matthew, John, Paul, Peter, the ones who who wrote the New Testament as well. And so the apostles and the prophets were the ones who spoke the word of God to the early church, and the church was built on their foundation. Of course, Christ himself is the chief cornerstone upon which those men built their ministries. But together, these men wrote the New Testament scriptures, and the church was built on their ministry and on the word of God that they wrote. And when the last of the apostles died, just before or around 100 AD, the foundation of the church was laid and and was no longer needed to be laid again. New apostles and and new prophets were no longer necessary. And we've kind of talked about this before, and so I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of detail there. But the apostles and the prophets were a a one-time gift to the church for the foundational period of the church, but through them, the Lord gave us the most precious gift, which is the Word of God, the New Testament Scriptures. And so now we have the Word of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and and on this foundation of God's Word, the church is built. And the church must continue to build on this foundation. There's really no other foundation that we can have than the Word of God. If we want to be built on Christ, the chief cornerstone, then we need to build on the word of God that he gave us through his apostles and the prophets. And when the apostles planted the churches that they planted, they they appointed elders, not further apostles, to carry on the work. They appointed elders to oversee and lead those churches. And so the apostles and the prophets cease, but their writings continue to this day as a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ to his church. This book is a gift from Christ to us. And so how sad it is that many churches really ignore this gift and don't pay enough attention to this gift that they have. The the very thing that is given by Christ to build up his church is often ignored in those churches. But now we go further, we've seen the apostles and prophets, we know what they've given us. Now we go further and we see two more people given by Christ. And the first one is the evangelists, and then second, 
the pastors and teachers. Now notice, and you, you'll want to be there, notice in your text, look at verse 11. Notice where the commas are. He gave the apostles, comma, the prophets, comma, the evangelists, comma, the shepherds and teachers. Notice where the commas are, and I think they've, they've done it right in our English text. This is not speaking about um, three people here, or, or maybe we should say this isn't speaking about five people. This is speaking about four people. The two that we're looking at now are the evangelists and the pastors, and I would probably make it a hyphen, pastors hyphen teachers, pastors and teachers. So we've got evangelists and we've got the shepherds and teachers. The Greek text makes the separation even, even more clear than we can really bring out into English. There's, there's four groups given. Again, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and then the fourth group is the shepherds and teachers. The New American Standard Bible and the Legacy Standard Bible try to, to bring out these groups, um, to really bring out the Greek text by using the word some. So listen to the Legacy Standard translation. It says, and he himself, and there is an emphasis there on Christ, he himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Well, let's talk about these evangelists first of all. An evangelist is someone who is gifted at communicating the gospel. They preach the evangel. They preach the good news of the gospel. The Greek word euangelion is, it means good news, the good news of salvation, the euangelion. And the, the evangelist is a euangeliistes, euangeliistes, and one who proclaims the gospel, the evangel. We can see that English word evangel there in the euangelion. The, 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 an evangelist is someone who preaches the evangel, someone who preaches the good news of the gospel. And we typically think of an evangelist maybe as somebody who, who goes out to proclaim the gospel, like a, like a Ray Comfort on Huntington Beach preaching the gospel. And, uh, and he is an evangelist. And evangelists do proclaim the gospel. But here, these evangelists are given, according to verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So in other words, they're, they're teachers of evangelism, and, and maybe they do teach by actually doing evangelism, but the, the primary task here that Paul's got in mind is this equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And so these evangelists are given to train the saints to proclaim the gospel. And, um, and, and what I want, want to say about that is that, that we need to know the gospel as a church. Like, we want to be a people who know the gospel, who understand it, first of all, for our own salvation, but then secondly, we, we need to be people who know how to explain the gospel to others. And evangelists are a gift from Christ to his church to enable us and equip us to preach the gospel and teach the gospel so that we can be more effective in our ministry of proclaiming the gospel to our friends and family and neighbors. Now there's, there's, there's people in our church that are, are going to be gifted by Jesus Christ to teach us how to evangelize. And, uh, and they are again a gift from Christ to his church. Now the next group of people is these shepherds and teachers or pastors and teachers. 
And the idea here is of a pastor or a shepherd who, who teaches. And pastor is the primary word or, or shepherd is the primary word. That's the same Greek word to pastor or to shepherd. That's the primary word here. But, but Paul wants to make it clear that, that the pastoring that he has in mind, the shepherding that he has in mind involves a teaching ministry. And in fact, the way that Paul words this here, it shows us that all shepherds, all biblical shepherds are teachers. At the same time that they shepherd, their, their task also involves teaching. And when we see a structure like what we see here in verse 11 with the shepherds and teachers, it, it functions like this. The, the first word after the word the is the primary word, which in our case is the shepherds. And the next word also describes this group of people as well. And so, so the idea here again is that all shepherds teach. And actually, we just looked at it. You see the same pattern if you go back again to Ephesians 2 and you look at verse 20. Remember the, the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the same basic structure is happening there. And all of the apostles were also prophets. All of the apostles had the gift of prophecy, even though not every one of them wrote scripture, but at, at times they would, they would have been able to prophesy and to speak the word of the Lord. But there were some, some other prophets in the, in the second word, and, and those prophets were not apostles. So hopefully that kind of makes sense that you can kind of see that. The, the first group is the, the broader group, and they also do the second thing. And so in our case, all shepherds are teachers. All shepherds teach. But then there's also teachers who might, may or may not be shepherds. Now, Paul's not talking about teachers here. He's talking about shepherds. He's talking about pastors. And he's saying that their ministry is to teach the word of God. Now, shepherding is more than just teaching, but it always must include teaching. Without teaching, there is no true shepherding. Shepherding includes uh, a number of things. It includes knowing the sheep. This is how we typically think about shepherding, knowing which sheep belong to the shepherd. And I'm just talking about regular shepherding, just like I'm, I'm talking about farming shepherding right now. The, the shepherd has to know his sheep, which ones belong to him. And the shepherd, at least in the ancient Near Eastern world, had to lead his sheep. And so that was part of the task of shepherding, was leading the sheep. And of course, where did you lead them? You led them to feed. So you led them to in such a way that they would get the food that they needed. And so shepherding includes feeding the sheep. And then shepherding, fourthly, included protecting the sheep from danger. And so the shepherd would often sleep out with the sheep and he would bring them in, lead them into the, the corral for the evening, lead them into the, into the, the fenced area. And then they would even often sleep on the door so that, so that the, when a, when a predator came in, they would, they would be able to notice and protect the sheep. And in the same way, pastoring is, is very, very similar. Pastors need to know their sheep. They need to know the people that belong to their church. And they need to lead the church in biblical ways and they need to feed them with the, the food from God's word and they need to protect them from the danger of false teaching. And so the same Greek word for, for literal shepherding of, of literal animals was also used for the metaphorically to speak about caring for sheep of God, the, the people of God. 
And literal sheep were led by shepherds, animals, and metaphorical sheep are God's flock, people who have come to God through Jesus Christ. And again, pastoring means knowing those people under the pastor's care. It means leading them in God's ways, leading them in God's truth, leading them as a model of sanctification, as an example of, of what following Jesus Christ looks like. It means feeding them on God's word, which, which again is a metaphor for teaching the truth. And then pastoring also means protecting those people from error, from false teaching, and from false teachers who would lead them astray. Now, people who do that are the shepherd-teachers. They are, they are shepherd-teachers. These are the people that Paul has in mind. And these people are gifted for that work, and they're given a desire to do that work, and then they're given by Christ to the church for that work. And they are, according to our text, they are a gift from Christ. And this is how Paul wants the Ephesians to think about these pastor teachers as well as the evangelists, and, and even, we could say, even about himself as an apostle. He doesn't want them to think highly of him so that, that he can have the praise of men. He, he doesn't want them to think highly of him so that he can exalt himself. But he wants them to see these people as gifts to the church for the sake of unity and for the sake of maturity in the church. You see, he wants the church to recognize these people so that they will be, so that they will more willingly be equipped for the work of ministry. And so to kind of drive this home, I, I need to ask you, how do you view your shepherds? How do you view your shepherds? How do you view those who equip you for ministry? Or how do you view those who teach you the word of God? This text that we should, says that we should view them as a gift or gifts given by Christ. Now in 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says a very similar thing here. He says, there, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so think about how you view your, your shepherds, your pastors, your, those who have equipped you maybe through the years, maybe not even in, in a particular local church, but even just those in the, the larger body of Christ. They are, they are a gift to us to teach us and equip us. And with that, we can kind of move into verse 12. Why did Christ give evangelists and shepherd teachers? Why did he give the, uh, the apostles and the initial gift that they had that these evangelists and shepherd teachers use? And verse 12 gives us the answer. It's to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And there's a progression that's happening here in verse 12 that's really important for us to see. You see, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers, they have a purpose, and that purpose is to equip the saints. You see, my, my job as the, the pastor teacher of our church, my job is to equip you. My job is to prepare you, to equip you, and if you're a Christian, you are a saint, and you've been set apart by Christ. You have been made holy by the salvation that's in Jesus Christ. And that word saint, that comes from the same root as the word holy. And so you are set apart. You are holy for God's purposes if you are a Christian. 
And you're no longer your own. You've been, you've been bought with a price. You no longer belong to yourself. You are holy to the Lord. You are a saint. And my job as the pastor is to equip you as a saint. Now that word equipping means to prepare someone for something. To make adequate or to make sufficient. See, my job is to get you ready for something. And maybe as a, an illustration of this, you know, some of you are, are kind of like always ready for camping, right? Who, who's, who's always ready for camping? Who's got their trailer loaded? You are equipped to go camping kind of at the drop of a hat, at least when the weather's good. You're equipped, you're ready to go, and you can do all of the things that you need to do when you go camping because you've got everything in your trailer. Or if you're like me, you're going to have to spend like a week getting ready, getting equipped if you're going to go camping, because I'm not equipped and prepared to go camping at the drop of a hat. But either way, you kind of get the idea of what it means to be equipped. You're ready for anything that happens on a particular camping trip. My job is to get you ready for anything that happens in ministry. So I'm to prepare you for the work of ministry, verse 12. My job is to equip you, and your job as saints then is to do the work of ministry. You know, sometimes, and I don't know if it's, it's so much around here or, or whatever, but sometimes people think that it's the, the pastor's job to do the work of the ministry. You know, we think, oh, it says, we think it says here, Shepherd teachers to equip the saints and do the work of ministry. See that? See the difference there? It doesn't say that, that, that shepherd teachers are to equip the saints and do the work of the ministry. It's, it's not that way. Instead, the work of ministry is all of our job. It's all of us together are responsible to do the work of ministry. All the saints and including me, all of us are to do the work of ministry. Now, last week we saw that each of us has a spiritual gift and we saw that if we have a gift, we are to use it for the glory of God. That's the work of ministry is using our spiritual gifts, evangelism and building up the church. Any service that we do for the glory of God, that is the work of ministry. And what we can see or, or we can see that what this work of ministry is, if we if we follow the progression so the purpose of the work of ministry is for building up the body of Christ. So if we want to know, well, what is this ministry that we're to do? It's anything that would build up the body of Christ. And that word there, building, is a, is a word that's just mostly used for construction. But it's used figuratively for strengthening, for making something effective or edifying the body. And so our ministry is, is, is supposed to, intended to build up the church. It encourages the, is the church. It, it strengthens the church. It makes the church effective and effectual in its mission. And the better equipped you are, the more effective you're going to be at doing the work of ministry. And the more that ministry is effective, the more effective that ministry is, the more that it's going to build up the church and the more that God is going to be glorified in or through the church. And so that's the progression that's happening there. And I really hope that you see it, that the pastors, shepherds, evangelists, their ministry is 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The saints do the work of ministry and all of us together doing that work build up the body of Christ. Now let's go back slightly here as we kind of think about this. Now that you've seen the progression, we've talked about what it means to equip and we talked about who the saints are. Now we need to look at a word there in the middle of verse 12 and it might be a little bit of a scary word for us. It's that word work. I want you to look in that, in, in, I want you to look in verse 12 and I want you to see that word work. Did you know that you were saved to work? You were created for work and, and we were, we were recreated in Christ for work. We were made to work in the beginning in the garden and we were saved to work for the glory of God. And that word means exactly what you would expect it to mean. It's not a, it's not a fancy word. It's not a deep word. It's just a, a regular word. It means to work. It means to do something. It refers to any kind of activity or action. You see, we were saved to, to do something. We were saved for activity. We were saved to do some action for the glory of God. Jesus used this word in Matthew 5.16 where he said, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so there's that same word there, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This word is used of Jesus' works in Matthew 11 and verse 2 where it's translated deeds. It says there, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ or the works of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. But it's not a special word. It just simply means work or it's simply whatever is done. If you just go back in Ephesians, look at Ephesians 2 and verse, well, verse, let's go, let's start in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, there's our word, so that no one may boast. But then it goes on in verse 10 and says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And there's our word again, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we were saved by a gift of God. It's not a result of any works that we did, but we are, when we were saved, we were made alive with Christ and we, we became God's workmanship. And part of that workmanship included gifting us in unique ways to serve the Lord. And, and we were then created for the purpose of doing these good works, which as Jesus said, is going to cause people to glorify God when they see the things that we're doing, not out of, not to earn our salvation, but out of gratefulness for our salvation, as really as acts of worship, we serve God because of the salvation that he has worked in our life. And so if you are a saint, you need to walk in these works. Again, not to save yourself, you can never save yourself, but, but to show what the Lord has done for your soul, you are called to work. Again, we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is meant to join us to Christ and transform us and enable us to be doers of good works. And again, those works are works that build up the body of Christ, either by evangelism, by reaching lost people, or by a ministry to save people that causes them to grow 
in Christ's likeness. And we'll see more how that works next week when we get into verses 14 to 16. See, according to our text, there is a work of ministry for each and every saint. Now, what does that imply that this ministry is called a work? What does this imply? Well, I think it implies that it won't always be easy, right? It's not, it's not always going to be just the, the simplest thing that you could do to, to do good works for the Lord. Using your spiritual gifts isn't always like this easy breezy, lemon squeezy kind of thing. Um, you know, it's not always going to be rewarding. I think sometimes we think, well, if it's my spiritual gift, it's going to be easy. It's going to be natural. It's going to just flow. It's just, and if it doesn't just flow, then I'm not going to do it. Well, I don't know how your job is, but in my job, sometimes I have to kind of pick myself up by the bootstraps and make myself do the job of work that I'm called to do. And it's the same in our spiritual lives. Sometimes it's work. Sometimes we need to, to work our good works. You know, sometimes they're going to feel like more like work than, than they, than they other times do. And that's okay. Effort glorifies God too. Don't be deceived by that. Effort glorifies God as well. And this section even started with this, with this urging by the apostle Paul to, to walk. And the, and the way we were supposed to walk was by being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And that word eager there meant to be zealous or to be eager or to, to take pains or to, to make every effort. Every effort. That's what that word means. Every effort. That's a, a working word. That's a strenuous word. And sometimes we need to work to do the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ. Sometimes it takes effort. It takes work. It's not always easy. But it's what we were saved to do. It's what we were saved to do. And so part of maintaining unity means working to minister to one another. And again, that's why those words that Paul used earlier in chapter 4, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, even those words kind of imply it's not going to be easy always. It's not going to be just natural. Sometimes it's a, a bearing with one another, a ministering to one another through difficulties. And that's, that's the idea of, of this word here, work. The work of the ministry. The next word there is, is the of ministry. And that word ministry is the, the word, um, it, it means ministry or, or service. That word is, Diacon, diaconias, uh, diaconias, um, you, you probably know the word diaconos, a, a deacon. A deacon is a servant. And this word is, is very close to that word. This word means service or, or ministry. The Legacy Standard Bible translates verse 12 this way. It says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And so the idea of this word is, is ministry, or I think it might be more, more clear to us if we just think of serving one another. The work that we are called to is service. It's ministry. We're called to, to serve one another. We're called to be involved in one another's lives with the aim of building one another up in our most holy faith. 
And so let's kind of uh, try to apply this a little bit. Let's think about how, how, do we, how do we live this out? What do we do now as we think about what it means here, what we've learned? Well, for me, I need to ask a couple things for myself. I need to ask, am I equipping these dear people? Am I preparing them for the ministry that, that God has called them to do? Am I shepherding them? Am I leading them? Am I teaching them in a way that prepares them for ministering to each other? You know, and, and when I think about the weightiness of this, I, I can ask myself, am I ministering and teaching in such a way that I would be like a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ to you? That's what I'm called to as the pastor, as the one who's the shepherd teacher, and, and maybe even as the one who's probably most likely to teach you and train you in evangelism as well. And so I need to ask myself those kinds of questions for you there's kind of two sides for you as well. For me on the one side, how am I doing on teaching and, and am I a gift from Christ? For you, there's two sides as well. On the first side, are you being equipped for the work of ministry? Are you being equipped? That, that would be part of your responsibility is to be equipped. You know, do you come on Sunday ready to learn? Do you come maybe for some of you taking notes and, and really seeking to learn and apply what the scripture says? Are you coming on Sunday nights? Are you taking the opportunities to be equipped that our church has placed there for your spiritual growth? Are you at women's ministry? Are you coming Wednesday morning if you can? You know, those are the kinds of questions that you want to ask yourself. Am I, am I taking the opportunities to be equipped that, that the shepherd teacher that Christ has given me has, um, has put in place? You know, do you come to learn? Do you, and, and not just to learn in your mind, but to seek to apply, not just to, to hear the word, but also to put it into practice. And then on the other side of this, you need to consider, are you doing the work of ministry? Are you doing the work of service? Having been equipped, are you, are you using what you were equipped to do? Are you using what you're learning to build up the body of Christ? And I, I don't ask the, these things to, to condemn. I don't ask them because I think that you're not doing those things. I ask because each one of us needs to honestly examine ourselves and consider how we're doing in these areas. You know, and, and just to, as a, a form of encouragement, because you don't get all the encouragement that I get, but as a, as a form of encouragement to you, as I've been doing these membership interviews and I've, as I've been talking to people about their salvation and about why they want to join our church, um, one of the most encouraging things has been the report that I get about all of you. Because people tell me about the way that our church has ministered to them, the way that they've grown since they've come here. In fact, just earlier this week, somebody told me that, that when they first came to our church, the first thing they noticed, or one of the first things that they noticed was that, that we don't just talk weather, we don't just talk work, but we talk about in, in, in the fellowship in our homes, we talk about Christ and what he's doing in our lives and, and how we're growing. And, and, and so you are serving to and ministering to one another in ways that is just awesome. But what, what my job then is, is to encourage you to abound more and more in those things and to, to continue to do the work of being involved in one another's lives and even to continue to do the work of, of, of turning conversations into ways that edify and, and glorify God rather than maybe just what's the easiest thing to talk about. You know, people tell me that you take your faith seriously and that it's not just a Sunday thing, but it's a whole life of following Jesus Christ and serving him week in 
and week out. And so you should be encouraged. But again, we, we're to abound more and more in these things. And so that was the people through which the body grows. Now number two, we go into verse 13 here. And we're going to start into the process by which the body grows. And there's going to be three parts as we look at the, the process of the growth of the body. Verse 13 talks about the duration of the body's growth. The duration of, of this ministry. Verses 14 and 15 talk about the design of the body's growth. What, what the aim is, what the purpose is as, as we grow in unity and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And then verses, or verse 16 is, talks about, is a, is a description of the body's growth and the way that it all works. And so again, we're not going to have time to cover all of this. We're just going to look at verse 13 here. And look at verse 13. It says here, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And this is the duration of the body's growth. Note, note that word there, until. That word until modifies the last part of verse 12. It's not that Christ gave or is giving apostles and prophets until all of this happens. Until is, is about this, this building up of the body. The, the body needs to be built up until everyone is like Christ. The body is to be built up until what verse 13 says happens. Equipping and the work of ministry, these things must continue to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to two things. The first one there, it says, is the unity of the faith. And the second thing that we have to do this until is until the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God, until we attain the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, when you think about what those two things are, that is quite the goal. Unity of the faith would be a a united belief of the truth. Until we all come to the same doctrinal understanding, we're to continue to build one another up in our most holy faith. Until we all hold to the one faith that we saw in verse 5. We need to minister to one another until we have a perfect doctrinal unity. That's what Paul's saying. Now, you might wonder, even as I even am tempted to wonder, is that even possible? But I don't even think, I don't think there's another way to understand this verse. This is what, this is the goal that Paul has in mind when he thinks about the church, that we might attain to the unity of the faith. And if we think that's hard, then go even further in the next part until he says, until we all attain to the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. And the knowledge of the Son of God, of course, that's the knowledge of Jesus Christ, an infinite person with two natures, one man and one God. And so we're to minister to one another until we all attain to a united knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul described this knowledge of Christ in in chapter 3 and verse 8 of Ephesians as unsearchable riches. In fact, in in Psalm 145, verse 3, that's probably where he got that. I just happened to read that this morning. 
Um, there's this, this unsearchable, I forget exactly how it says it, but there's this unsearchableness, this untrackableness. You can't, it, it's, it's like it's infinite and you can never get to the end of it. This is what we are to minister to one another until we attain to this knowledge of the Son of God. And Paul's not merely talking about, about some kind of head knowledge as we think about it. He's not talking about book smarts about Christ. He's talking about a knowledge of Christ that makes us like him. And we know that because he says there in verse 13, to mature manhood. And then to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In fact, I would go so far as to say that all true knowledge of the faith and all true knowledge of the Son of God should make us more like Christ. And if we're not being changed into the image of Christ, we are learning incorrectly. Growth in knowledge should really correspond with growth in grace and growth in godliness and growth in Christ-likeness. And it needs to happen to mature manhood or to a mature man. And the, the idea here is that, that Paul is picturing the whole body as one man. And so he's, he's kind of, he's picturing the body, we could say it as a, a unified body until this one body reaches mature manhood or reaches the level of a mature man. And so the whole body is, is taken together and we all grow together because we are, we are one. Let me put it kind of the, in the opposite way. Immaturity and disunity go hand in hand. That's what Paul's saying here. Immaturity and disunity go hand in hand. And so his goal for the body is maturity and unity. As we grow in maturity, we will grow in unity. As the body matures in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, unity will result. As we minister to one another and mature one another, we grow towards unity. And then Paul says in verse 13 at the end, he says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And he's basically saying here that we must build one another up until we are all utterly like Christ. Until we are all utterly like Christ, completely like Christ. Until we reach the measure of the stature, which is talking about the height, which, which height belongs to the fullness of Christ. And, and, and Paul's saying then, if you haven't reached that measure, there's this measurement of the height of Christ and the fullness of Christ. And if you haven't reached that measure, then he says, you got to keep on going, building one another up in our most holy faith. Our goal then is, is like Christ's goal for us as his bride in Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, says there in Ephesians 5 verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. This is Christ's goal for his bride. This is our goal for the body of Christ as well. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. And so you see what we are called to here, brothers and sisters? What a, what a high view of the church we are to have. 
You know, Paul isn't just presenting some kind of an idealistic pipe dream. He is the He is the one who has given wisdom and insight into the mystery of the church. He said in chapter 1 and verse 19 that the power of God is working in us who believe. He said in 123 that the church is being filled by Christ, being filled to the fullness of Christ. He prayed in 319 that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. That the church would be filled with all the fullness of God. What a remarkable thing. Paul has this, this really high view of what God can do in and through the church. And the reason for that is because we are made alive with Christ and Christ is in us. He is in us. We are his body and he gave us gifted people to equip us to minister to one another. And as we minister to one another by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are going to grow to be like Jesus Christ. And God is going to use us to build up the body in ways far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. This is from chapter 3 and verse 20 and 21. And then Paul says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul thinks that, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or even all that we even think. And he's calling the church to this when he calls us and tells us that Christ has given us gifted people. And those people equip us for the work of ministry. And as we do the work of ministry that we all are, are we are building up the body of Christ And we're to do this until each and every one of us is utterly like Christ. In other words, we're really to do this until the end of the age when we're going to be perfect in God's presence forever. And so this is the work. This is what we are called to do as a local church. And, uh, and we need to do it for God's glory. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together in your word. And we just pray that these things would be true of us. We pray that you would help us to be all that you would have us be as a local church. We pray that you would help me to equip the saints here in this place in a way that that prepares them for this ministry. We pray that you would help us all to do the work of ministry, to minister to one another, to use our gifts in ways that glorify you. We pray that you would help us to do good works that, that honor you and show the glory of Christ. And we pray that you would make us all that you would have us be as a local church. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.